welcome. This is the final bonus episode in my Star Wars tribute, celebration, whatever you want to call it. This is the full-on spoiler review of both The Rise of Skywalker and episodes 7 and 8 of The Mandalorian because uh, some of these things tie together. And so if you haven't seen The Mandalorian or you haven't seen episode 7 or 8 or you haven't seen The Rise of Skywalker, turn this off. Go uh, divult, uh, you know, invest yourself in watching those things. And if you haven't seen The Rise of Skywalker by now, I'm recording this exactly one week and a day since it opened, then come on, man. You're not on top of things in regards to uh, Star Wars. And much like I say on the Magic Podcast, how interested can you be in these things if you're not jacked up to go Immediately. Now, I understand people have jobs and family commitments and all that stuff, but that's just excuses. And as a friend of mine likes to say, which is a Jim Rohn quote, excuses, uh, the house of failure is built upon excuses, or excuses are the nails to build the house of failure, or variations thereof. So if you haven't seen it already, or you haven't taken your kids to see it already, like, what the fuck are you doing? Get your life in order. Obviously, priorities are things like Star Wars. Those are the things that put uh, the creative juices forward. They get things moving in regards to the imagination, hope, dreams of children. And so you're robbing them of that if, in fact, you haven't already, you know, in the first week... Uh, done so I mean uh, you're you know you got your priorities out of alignment now I've seen the movie as of this uh, recording three times I saw it twice on uh, the Friday the day after it opened back to back and then I took my nieces to see it on Monday and I had to sort of a growing different experience as, as the, as the viewings went on and the initial viewing, as you go back and see my initial reaction to it, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a fun romp. Uh, but there was a, I had some misgivings and you may be able to tell that from the way I, t- I was talking. I had some real misgivings when I saw it, uh, with my nieces, uh, a third time, and I and by that time I'd had a few days for it to sink in. Some of those things had sorted themselves out a bit in my mind. There's still some things I disliked about it, of course, like with every movie. But overall, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And when I, especially when I went and saw it with my nieces, and they're almost wholly of this new Disney regime. This, uh, you know, they know the characters of Ray and Ben Solo. And uh, Maz Kanata and this group a heck of a lot better than they know Luke and Vader and so forth. They have more personal relationship with these new characters because they're contemporary with them growing up. Much like the original trilogy was contemporary with me growing up. So it's understandable. And seeing it with them was a whole different experience than seeing it by myself. Because when you're by yourself, of course, 
I enjoy it as a Star Wars fan. And you're just enjoying it because it's Star Wars and I enjoy every Star Wars thing to certain degrees. But also then, as an adult, and as someone who's interested in uh, the presentation of things and storytelling and is involved in that aspect in my own professional work, then that hat is also at some point placed on it. And there were some real sticky parts I didn't like about The Rise of Skywalker that I thought from a storytelling standpoint were not solid. But in repeat viewings, though, I got to enjoy the Star Wars part even more so, I would say. And some of the inconsistencies and logic smoothed out a bit. I do really like this movie. I especially like seeing it with my nieces and seeing their reactions to it. My niece even called uh, called the, uh, the traitor being Hux. She called it ahead of time as the scene was approaching. So that was uh, just a very fun experience. So I'm going to go through sort of a few things I liked. Now I will say uh, that uh, it seems uh, purposeful, of course, that The Mandalorian, which normally comes out on Friday, which I watched this morning, the final episode of season number one I watched this morning, just hours before recording this, uh, the episode 7 of The Mandalorian uh, was moved from the Friday to the Wednesday to come out before the worldwide or the nationwide, perhaps, release of The Rise of Skywalker. And that seems purposeful in the fact that there's an element that ties those two things together. So, uh, let me just go through some of the things I liked. So going into the rise of Skywalker, we knew that, of course, Carrie Fisher had passed away and that J.J. Abrams intended to use uh, footage that was left over that wasn't used in The Force Awakens and he was going to write scenes and they were going to create scenes around that footage for Rise of Skywalker so that Leia could appear in The Rise of Skywalker. Now... Um, I thought, given what they were working with and what a challenge that must have been, that I thought that part was very solid. It worked for me. It stood up over, under repeat viewings. And I think that was po possibly uh, the best you could have hoped for, basically. I mean, I don't know what else you would have done. So that part I especially liked, especially liked. It seemed very good. It seemed like she was there. There was a few hiccups, just minor things. But uh, for the most part, I thought it worked really well. And the fact that uh, her character gives impetus to the reversal of, of, uh, of Kylo Ren essentially dying and, and Ben Solo uh, reappearing, I thought was beautiful. So I thought that whole Leia thing worked very well. Uh, number, I sort of have a list of 10 here. So number two, uh, the whole... When Kylo is essentially killed and Leia dies as a result too and then Ben Solo reappears and is healed by Rey and then he has this conversation which was completely unexpected but I thought was probably one of the most if not the most poignant moment of the entire movie was when he has this memory of his father of Han Solo 
he says, hey, kid, and he turns around and it's Han Solo. In the theater, people were like, whoa. Like, you could just... It went so silent. And people were so shocked, as I was, that uh, Han Solo would uh, reappear. And given what we know about uh, Harrison Ford's dislike for the continuing reprisal of Han Solo... uh, I'm sure, and I don't know this to be factual, but I'm sure originally that that was probably going to be Carrie Fisher. Or that would have been Carrie Fisher had she still been alive. But because she had passed away and you didn't have footage that you could use for that, uh, the fact that Harrison Ford agreed to reprise Han Solo one more time, I think is, is awesome. And that scene was the mirroring of that scene, but in reverse in a way. Of the one in A Force Awakens was uh, perfect. Even the way he put his hand on uh, Ben Solo's face and uh, the same words being spoken, but now meaning the opposite, essentially. Uh, and then when he throw, you know, then when it's over, and he, you know, and he throws the lightsaber away, and then turns back. Now, some people uh, I've heard just since I've seen the movies. I've uh, seen it for a third time, talking about uh, Kylo looking for validation by turning back to see if Hansel was still there. He says right up front that, the, you know, the, I mean, Hansel is not a force ghost. He's not a Jedi. Uh, it's a memory. And Kylo states that, you know, this is just a memory. And so I think when he throws the lightsaber and then turns back quickly, he, want, he he's almost unsure if that, all that was real. Or if that was a memory. Or if his mind is playing tricks on him. Or perhaps, you know, that's the first realization he has that uh, that, is, that is generated from within. And not some sort of manipulation, right? Which we find out early in the, in the uh, movie. He has been manipulated by Palpatine this whole time. Palpatine posing as Snoke. Uh, Palpatine posing as the voice of Vader in his head. I thought that was a nice way to do it. They they made that known on the last trailer, sort of right before the movie came out. Uh, so I thought that was that was good, and that sort of explains why he's speaking to the mask and stuff in the Force Awakens. So I thought the whole Han and Kylo thing and how it was mirrored from the Force Awakens was beautiful. Well done uh, by JJ. Poe uh, taking a bigger part in this film, I thought, was uh, good. You know, mostly uh, Poe had a pretty rough ride in The the Last Jedi. And his growth as a character, I thought, was was good. Because he sort of ascended to that leadership position. And uh, based on what he'd learned in The Last Jedi. So I thought his expanded role was, was pretty good. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed him being a bigger part of the film in general. We learned some of his backstory. I don't know if that was necessary per se, but and the character of Zori Bliss necessarily. But uh, yeah, it was good to sort of get some of Poe's uh, up to his own. You know, his involvement in the story was much greater, and he had some real funny. Uh, he some of his humor actually hit, and I don't think some of the humor actually. Most I don't think a lot of the humor actually was as good as some of the other movies. 
but uh, Pose Pose was. Uh, the whole Luke Skywalker thing, um, where he comes back as a Force ghost on Octo, whatever the island is called, where Ray briefly goes to resign herself and do the same as Luke did in The Last Jedi, and then Luke convinces her that he was wrong, that he shouldn't have done that. Uh, a lot of people say that's like a... And people have said this about a number of factors about the uh, Return of Skywalker, that it's a retconning or a canceling of The Last Jedi. And uh, no, you gotta... People who say that really are some of these people who are just not that sharp intellectually. If you go back to my uh, review of The Last Jedi, the first thing I thought when I left the theater, and when I left the theater after watching The Last Jedi, I liked that movie initially a lot more than I liked The Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker has grown on me the more I've seen it, as did The Last Jedi. I liked it more and more, but the, my initial feeling about The Last Jedi was it was a much better movie. And I think overall it's a much more well-constructed movie, actually, and sort of more subtle and uh, just better laid out than The Rise of Skywalker and, and my favorite of the sequels. But The Rise of Skywalker has grown the more I've seen it. Grown, my uh, my uh, enjoyment of it has grown the more I've seen it. And uh, I thought the, uh, the ending was beautiful, too, which put a nice cap on everything. But people who say that it's the, a lot of it's a retconning of The uh, Last Jedi, I think, are just not that sharp mentally. Because really, uh, the Luke scenes, especially in The Rise of Skywalker, of course, were based on the fact that if you look at the Skywalker arc in The Last Jedi... He's already come to that conclusion when he helps uh, the resistance at the end by force projecting himself to, on, onto crate. He's already discovered the error of his thinking about failure. And he has that meeting with Yoda and stuff. So he's already realized that. So when you see him in the Rise of Skywalker, that is an extension of him already realizing that back in the previous movie. So to say that's a retconning of it is, just means that you you don't follow things very closely and you're not intellectually uh, that with it, in my opinion. And so it made perfect sense why Luke would catch the saber. And that's the thing I think which trips people up because he says that's not the way to uh, treat, you know, the weapon of a Jedi or whatever. And they think that's a, a direct reversal or canceling of the Last Jedi thing where he throws it over his shoulder, but it's not. As I just explained in The Last Jedi, the beginning of his arc, when he throws that thing, is that he believes he's done the right thing to cut himself off from the Force and move himself off the chessboard and, and uh, not complete this, continue the cycling, uh, which he's been a part of partially and which uh, continues to occur. But by the end, he's, uh, after his conversation with Yoda especially, He's realized this sort of error of his ways and that the failure is a necessary part and that he's imparted this uh, to Ray and uh, his character has come, uh, you know, he's sort of uh, moved past that. And so that, I think, uh, is put in there because he already realizes uh, the error of his ways, which he did in The Last Jedi by the end of it. And it's a comedic 
reference to the way he treated uh, the lightsaber, right? He is uh, jokingly, in a way, uh, referencing his own behavior. It's not a retconning, so people need to uh, sharpen their intellectual skills. Uh, secondly, uh, I thought that whole scene was quite nice. I didn't know if she needed to go um, back to Octo to get that. Because, I mean, the Force Ghost can really appear... They've appeared, you know, uh, of course, that's Luke never left the island and so forth. So I guess maybe J.J. was maybe trying to tie that to the fact that Luke, Luke never left the island. So, But, of course, Ben Kenobi uh, appeared to Luke on Dagobah, you know, in Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi or, wh or whichever one it was. Return of the Jedi, maybe. And, uh, or both, perhaps. And... Uh, so it's not like he's tied to there and the Force Ghost can appear because obviously he appears at the end of the movie to Rey on Tatooine, so it's not like he can't go anywhere. So I think it was unnecessary, perhaps, to, to get her to go to Octo just for that little shot. However, it did allow for the fact that, uh, and that was probably the only reason they did it, it did allow for the fact that she ends up with Luke's X-Wing and he raises it out of the water. So basically that was the whole reason that they did that. But I thought the speed of everything and the jumping around and stuff, I, I don't know if they necessarily uh, needed to do that. I mean, they could have still, uh, he could have still produced the X-Wing on a, on a different, I don't know how they would have done it, but whatever. Uh, you know, and that was nice too. I'm not totally against it. It just seemed like a, a real short reason to go back to Octo for just that. But uh, yeah, it was nice to see the, the X-Wing come up. To Luke do the raising a la Yoda and Empire Strikes Back. And for her to uh, fly away in Luke's X-Wing was excellent. And that led, of course... So that's probably why they did it, because they're trying to tie in a reason how they could follow, the rest of the rebellion could follow her to Exegol, right? So that's, they needed to tie that together. So that's as good, I mean, that's that's a good enough reason, I guess. But I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the Luke part. I don't think it was a retconning, as I said. And uh, seeing him raise uh, the X-Wing and stuff was fantastic. So that was uh, well done. Uh, let's see here. I mean, Chewie reacting, another thing I liked, which really hit everybody in the feels. Hit me in the feels. Hit my niece uh, I was sitting closest to in the feels big time, which goes to show you the impact of these small little details, is when we hear that Leia has passed and Chewie, uh, Chewbacca reacts and he falls to his knees and he's inconsolable. That hit everyone in the fields in the theater every time I saw it. And it hit my niece, who started to cry too, uh, the first time she saw it, or the only time she saw it. And she made a comment about that. Uh, so that was a very poignant moment and very well done. Really enjoyed that. What else we got here? Thought that one, yeah, so I thought that was very well done. The whole be with me thing I thought was good. At the very beginning, of course, we see Ray. She's trying to uh, connect with the uh, 
Jedi of the past. She can't. She's frustrated. She talks to Leia, who's essentially training her. Along with the textbooks, we know that because she references Leia as her master. We find out later that Leia was trained by Luke, which I thought was beautifully done and with the CGI and stuff. And, uh, and it gave a reason as to why she didn't continue. That also then ties Leia's abilities from The Last Jedi when she uh, flies, when she saves herself with the Force after being blown out of her ship. Uh, so that uh, actually supports The Last Jedi's uh, use of Leia, which I wouldn't have done, as I mentioned in The Last Jedi one, I wouldn't have done it so heavy handedly, uh, perhaps. But uh, this. Uh, training by Luke now that is in the Return of Skywalker, Rise of Skywalker. We now know that supports what happened to Leia in The Last Jedi. So that was good. And I like the brief fight where she knocks Luke down and then we see, the, you know, as when they were younger. And then she sort of uh, curtailed her training because she felt her son was going to turn to the dark side and so forth. Um, what else here? What, what else did I like? Babu Frick. What an incredible little uh, character. I thought he was awesome. What a, for, for as much time as he was on, on the screen, he had a big impact. Of course, he's uh, messing with 3PO's memory. He's able to extract the uh, Sith coordinates to Exegol. And, uh, he provided some uh, awesome uh, comic relief in a number of places while they're there on Kajimi uh, when he's messing with 3PO and he finally resets 3PO's memory and 3PO doesn't remember anything at first and says, I'm C-3PO, uh, you know, human-cyborg relations or whatever he says. And then, uh, and who might you be? And he says, I, I'm Babu, I'm Babu Frick, you know. And then later, 3PO, which was one of the funniest moments, I think, more subtle funniest moments in the whole movie, is somebody mentions Babu Frick uh, when they when they crash land on the moon of Endor and where the De Death Star uh, Part 2, uh, the wreckage is. Uh, Janna, the character of Janna, says Babu Frick. She references Babu Frick, I believe says he mentioned you guys are the last hope sort of thing and then c3po says bubble frick that's one of my oldest friends <laughs> i thought that was a great that was a hilarious line uh whoever wrote that if that was uh jj or chris terrio or uh even uh, uh colin trevorrow who got a writing credit i don't know what part his uh, writing played in this in all in any of this but uh he gets a writing credit and whoever wrote that line uh, masterful to tie that together I thought was uh, that's the essence of great comedy right there uh, the death seeing the Death Star again was great the, the second Death Star I thought that was good I thought uh, it was interesting to see how that dark ray was sort of you know hiding goes into the thing to get the holocron or the, uh, not the holocron, the uh, wayfinder. 
and uh, comes face to face with sort of the dark version of herself, much like Luke and Vader in the Dagobah and the Empire Strikes Back. And even the way uh, the dark ray went, like growled at her. I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was good too. Actually, I like that. Uh, interesting the way it was done, and the fact that they're actually, yeah, it's just very much a mirroring of Empire Strikes Back. Uh, fighting on the Death Star, of course, the clash. Now, one, one thing uh, I actually appreciated more about the these uh, these sequels was the lightsaber combat. You know, the original one it was kind of very uh, heavy, slow. I mean, Team Ben Kenobi and the Vader. You went to the prequels then, and it was a lot faster, a lot more nimble and there was a lot of just like flipping them around and stuff and then when you got back to the sequel trilogy they sort of pulled it back a bit again and you see kylo who's very good with a saber obviously in the force awakens you see the way he handles it one-handed when he's fighting uh when he easily match uh, overmatches finn and dispatches him but then when he's uh, fighting uh, Ray, even, and he gets beat, I mean, there's a, more of a, a hacking and slashing type. But if you go back to the original Vader-Luke fight, uh, and the uh, that's a lot more like the, the original trilogy saber battles are a lot more like the sequel ones than they are the prequel ones. And I prefer the original and the sequel ones. Because even when Ray and Kylo fight on the wreckage of the Death Star in the Rise of Skywalker... It's more those broad strokes and heavy clashes and stuff, which are more indicative of, of what it was like. You see Luke fight Vader. It's very, uh, you know, heavy, like sort of hard, deliberate uh, cuts. And not so, unless Vader, you know, when he throws it at Luke and stuff. But it's not this spinning, full, you know, uh, where it's, it's incredibly, it seems incredibly light and they just spin them around for no reason, which was a lot. That's a lot of that in the prequels where it's just flipping around for no reason. I like that Kylo turns it backwards and slashes and stuff with it in, in The Last Jedi and in this one. And you see in the, one, in the opening scene when we see Kylo on this planet looking for... Uh, the way, one of the wayfinders, he turns us around and stabs backwards into into one of the people who live on that planet, and it's just fantastic. So I, I much prefer the uh, the prequel ones were too fancy dancy for me. So I thought the uh, lightsaber battle, and especially with uh, Ray and Kylo flipping, you know, uh, using the force to steer, steer clear of the uh, water by doing these uh, Matrix-like jumps and stuff, I thought was, uh, yeah, it was great because it's a continuance of their increasing power. Uh, I did like the, uh, I did like Palpatine's lightning into the sky at the end, towards the end, where he's just lighting up the actual ships. And I'll get back to that in a second. I'm going to highlight this here on my list and get back to that because I want to say something about that in particular. 
Thought Lando was great. You know, he came comes back. Lando, I mean, is one of the biggest heroes in this whole nine film uh, scenario, really, because uh, you know he was he led the charge on the Death Star too, and he led the charge in the Rise of Skywalker by going and getting all those uh, affiliates to come, and uh, and which led to the uh, demise of the uh, the new Emperor's fleet, right? So that's. Uh, Basically, all the stuff that I thought was just really on point. I mean, there were a number of ways. I thought the, I thought the ending scene, in which uh, Ray goes back to Tatooine, we see her uh, pull up a piece of uh, wreckage and, and use it as a toboggan, like she did in the, or use it as a sled, as she did in the uh, in the in the Force Awakens. I thought it was a nice callback. We saw, you know, where Luke lived with. His, aunt and uncle and we get her bearing the uh, Luke and Leia lightsabers and then we get this old lady kind of very contrived of course to have this old lady come out of nowhere uh, especially when there's nobody around there ever like why is that lady there but whatever that's a little bit uh, a minor annoyance but it, it's pure there for for this narrative to occur of course where Ray uh, sees uh, then is asked who she is what, what her last name is basically and she takes the name of Skywalker. I thought that was a beautiful, poignant close to the whole nine films. Uh, and the Skywalker saga, I thought that was... Uh, part of me, after seeing that, though, almost wished it was Ben who had survived. And he had done that. Because he's actually a Skywalker, of course. Uh, they would have never done that, I'm sure. But part of me wished that that was Ben, and what I we'll get to we'll get to that in a sec. We're we're gonna get to a third section. I'm gonna talk about some of the stuff I didn't like, and then I'm gonna talk about some of the stuff the way I wished it would have occurred, perhaps. Uh, so yeah, I liked some of those. I liked the mirroring actually when Ben is or when Kylo Ren is talking to Ray on the on his ship, and he says, you know, I am. It was my, uh, I'm the son of my mother, and you are a Palpatine, and you are the, because he's the, he's the, uh, or, or rather, uh, he's the grandson of Vader. You are the granddaughter of Palpatine, and they are a dyad. I thought that was a nice thing, though. It strikes me as a bit uh, wonky story-wise as to the Emperor, not knowing they were a dyad because of the Emperor was controlling Snoke and was Snoke essentially, then he would have known they were a dyad because in fact Snoke even says, you know, uh, you have a powerful dark uh, side user and then the, the, the light, in fact, he says, uh, he makes this gesture of the light rising up of uh, the, the light to meet it. So you would think that the emperor, if he's the one in him, you know, in controlling, uh, or it's all the Sith or whatever you want to say, controlling Snoke, then uh, he would have known they were a dyad. So the fact that the emperor sort of finds out they're a dyad at the end was kind of hollow for me. That didn't work story-wise. Especially since, uh, you know, who is the new emperor? To me, it didn't strike me, you know, maybe part of the explanation 
is that that's not really the emperor, emperor, the one that was killed by Vader. But they've uh, salvaged his body, even though he's dead. And this essence of all the Sith from the past has been placed into the body of the emperor, which if he is cut down in anger, will then transfer to Rey. That seemed to be the suggestion they were going for, perhaps, because his, he's kind of got no body. I mean, his fingers are all shattered. His body's shattered. doesn't look like he even has legs. He's sort of propped up on that arm, on that mechanical arm. So it's almost like he's a representation and the Emperor being a famous, you know, Emperor Palpatine being a famous. And it's not until he is, uh, sucks the life force out of uh, ben and Ray that he then becomes the emperor that we know right because he doesn't even look like the emperor at the beginning i mean he, he looks like a, a younger version almost of the emperor you see these flashes where the uh, other emperor's face when he's first talking to kylo you see these lightning flashes and you see that old face you know it's really well done actually but it's almost like his body has been infused with all the sith from the past uh and, and uh, Palpatine being the newest of that group, because Ben's not really a, a Sith, or Kylo's not really a Sith, really, because the Sith are essentially dead. So, and, and those workers that are keeping that body mechanically, quote-unquote, alive, and they are the ones cloning uh, the Snokes and so forth, and uh, I guess we'll see when the Visual Dictionary, I haven't, uh, looked at the visual dictionary for the rise of skywalker but i wonder if the people in snoke's throne room near the beginning of uh the last jedi are in fact the same people the same beings that are cloning the you know because when you first uh, see hux and kylo i believe in the last jedi you see these beings in the corner of snoke's not the guards not snoke there's these other beings in there and I wonder if that's the same people or same beings that are you first see when Kylo goes to visit Palpatine at the very beginning of Rise of Skywalker if that's the same group these uh, acolytes basically and then maybe the acolytes of the of the beyond which are this group of people who sort of worship the Sith so let's get into a few things I, I thought didn't work so if, if they were if they're really going for Palpatine, not really being Palpatine returning, but merely the use of his name and his broken body as a as a figurehead, because he isn't so well known as the Emperor, a figurehead of which to infuse this Sith uh, essence into then that somewhat explains that these acolytes of his are the ones essentially uh, have been around since his death that would also explain the creation of that fleet because they've been doing this you know sort of behind the scenes perhaps since the prequels even i don't know and therefore it's not really palpatine in the way of uh, you'd really think of but uh, he's merely a representation that they've used as a figurehead. Hence why his broken body is sort of what they're channeling their essence through. 
that would make more sense perhaps because the mere return of Palpatine, which goes unexplained, uh, I thought was not well done. If that's what they're going for, if that's just the simple thing is just he's returned. I, I think that's kind of a stupid thing to do and completely unexplained. And in the crawl, it's just like the dead speak and you're just right into like the fact that he's back. I think that was a bad choice too. Even if he's just the S, his body is simply a vessel for the essence of the Sith. Then I think what they should have done, and I'm sure time probably precludes them, but it would have only taken one scene or a scene or two to to iron this out. As I think you should have seen when that message was delivered. Now I learned after the fact, after I saw it twice on the Friday, that. Uh, the message the Emperor sort of sent out that was talked about in the crawl at the beginning of Rise of Skywalker was actually, you can go listen to it, it's on YouTube, uh, but it was uh, only heard in the Fortnite video game. There was sort of a reveal, I guess, on the Monday or, or before the, the Monday before the movie came out that in Fortnite, the actual message of the emperor, the, the real message that he's supposedly delivered to the galaxy to, to announce his return and his revenge is actually in Fortnite. So that's something that obviously they recorded for the movie, but chose not to use. Uh, that would have been a great scene. Uh, you know, I could see much like in the force awakens when they use the, uh, the new death star, the third death star, the, you know, the planet to blow up various worlds. And you see the red beam, and you see the people watching as the red beam comes in and destroys their planets and they cut to a bunch of scenes of people watching their own demise. I thought something similar could have been done where it would have made that return of Palpatine or at least the seeming return of Palpatine more, more you know, they would have shown it instead of just told it in a way. So you could have seen all the people of the different worlds reacting to the Emperor's return, or supposed return. That would have been a better way to open that movie, perhaps. Because usually the crawl, uh, for once, the crawl didn't really match up with the action that he went into. It kind of did, because they ended it with Kylo saying he wants to find the Phantom Emperor and... Uh, kill him to make sure nobody's usurping his power and then you see Kylo killing a bunch of people so he can get those wayfinders so it does kind of match up but uh, it might have matched up better if we'd started with just a few uh, scenes in which like they pan down through the stars and you see a world and then you hear this message that might have just brought that to life a little bit better from a storytelling you could hear this announcement and then you could add Kylo. I mean, it wouldn't require a couple extra cuts and an extra whole scene, maybe. So I don't know why they didn't do that. I think that would have been better than just putting in the crawl. Uh, the fleet. So we're going to get into some things, that, since these are things I didn't like. The fleet, uh, to me... I mean, I wouldn't have minded the fleet, but the fleet with the Death Star tech as a cannon, I thought was just lazy as fuck. I mean, J.J. Abrams, I mean, he, he put the Star Killer base, which is essentially the third Death Star, 
Then he's put the Death Star tech into the actual ships themselves, which can blow up planets now, and which does blow up a planet, blows up Kajimi. So it's more Death Star tech. Uh, now in the in the Return of the Last Jedi, of course, they had a, a Death Star tech that was a, a cannon that they used. But that seemed like a scaled back, like Ryan Johnson making a good choice there by saying we have this leftover technology, we're scaling it back, and now it's like a infantry use only kind of thing. To have JJ put those cannons on, the, I mean, you wouldn't have needed, you didn't need those cannons, first of all, because if you had that many ships, which easily outnumber the rebel, you know, the the uh, the rebels or the or the uh, resistance. You, you wouldn't have, and all the officers occupying them from some magical place, then uh, you wouldn't need uh, those cannons necessarily. That fleet alone is is probably sufficient. But I thought that was putting that Death Star tech on there. Maybe it was a direct linked to The Last Jedi as well, where he's taking that cannon and putting it, you know. Uh, but to me, that just seemed uh, super fucking lazy. And yet another, I thought Starkiller Base was fucking lazy. This seems really lazy. They just can't get away from that damn Death Star, uh, you know, trying to blow up planets and stuff. The way I wished it would have gone, and which I would have thought would have been a much better tie and i sort of hoped going in that they were going to do this which never materialized and well i shouldn't say never materialized it materialized in the briefest of forms i would say was the emperor himself using the lightning to start to bring down the resistance ships now if you go back this is why i think it's lazy to have that fleet with death star tech if you go back to the the very first uh, start, you know, A New Hope, Episode Four, so the very first theatrically released Star Wars movie, the thing that started this whole thing. When they are talking, there's a there's a scene where Darth Vader chokes one of the officers because one of the officers sort of insults him by saying, "You, uh, even with your clairvoyance, you can't find these plans because the plans have been stolen." For the Death Star. And then he gets choked. But before he gets choked, there's a there's something Vader says, because all these officers are so high on the Death Star and how powerful this is, Vader attempts to cut their legs out with a sentence that goes something like, uh, the power of this, uh, this battle station is insignificant in comparison to the power of the force. And then that guy says, well, even with your mysticism or whatever, your, uh, your clairvoyance, you couldn't find who has these plans or where they are. And then Vader chokes him. Something like that. So uh, what I was hoping going into the Rise of Skywalker, which was fulfilled, like I said, in the tiniest way, was I was hoping they would stay away from all that Death Star horseshit, which has been done to death already. And that the return of the emperor and whoever or whatever is behind all that, they were going to attempt to bring that to fruition, which was that the power of the force even wielded uh, the dark side being, you know, because even Vader in Empire Strikes Back, he says, you don't know the power of the dark side. 
when he's trying to convince Luke to join him but when he cuts his hand off on uh, Cloud City. I was hoping, we got a little taste of it, that uh, Palpatine wouldn't need the Death Star tech and he wouldn't need the... Uh, uh, you could have had the uh, fleet, although it makes no sense that there's people occupying uh, that whole fleet. That doesn't uh, get explained at all and I think is weak. Uh, I would have hoped they would have done away with all that and just... Palpatine uh, or whoever's behind him, the, the power of the Sith, let's say, uh, is either channeled through, is either just used to blow up planets itself, because that is actually in some of the extended universe, uh, non-canon, is there were um, force users capable of devouring uh, planets. And, and even in the Legends of Luke Skywalker, a book that led up to The Last Jedi, uh, you have Luke, uh, a legend about Luke Skywalker using uh, Force Lightning to take down uh, Star Destroyers. Which is an interesting uh, thing. And then you see this Palpatine essentially doing this, or the, or the rejuvenated Palpatine doing this. And I thought that would have been a beautiful tie-in to the original movie by, by having this... Uh, him suck the life force out of Ben, this dyad, and then be able to use that, combined with his own power, to demonstrate what Vader was talking about in the first movie, which was the power of the force being so vastly superior to the Death Star that you don't know what you're talking about, and then have that demonstrated on screen where like planets would be destroyed and or lightninged uh, into submission by the simply uh, from the emperor's own fingers or whatever. And we got a little taste of that. But I thought they would have taken it even further. I thought it would have been even cooler and brought complete full circle closure to that whole idea of how powerful the force is. Especially when he's you know sucked the life out of uh, Ray and Ben. So I didn't... Uh, I didn't uh, care for the fact that they brought back the uh, Death Star stuff for the umpteenth time. So I wouldn't have done that. I would have gone in a different way. Uh, what else? Dominic Monaghan. Why was he even in the film? I mean, I got nothing against Dominic Monaghan. I got nothing against Dominic Monaghan, but his character was solely there for like exposition. And it was a complete waste. You know, he's a good actor. I got nothing, like I said, I got nothing against him. Why didn't you just give those lines to Rose? Because that's one of the things that, that uh, annoyed me about the Rise of Skywalker is the Rose character is completely sidelined. The romance between her and Finn is uh, destroyed, or essentially, I mean, uh, Finn perhaps has uh, eyes for Ray or whatever. And uh, there's a moment there where he says, Are you coming with us, Rose? And then. Uh, she's like, no, Leia wants me to stay here. And he's kind of like, all right then, see you later. And even at the end when she's like very concerned that he's hanging out on the Star Destroyer to trying to blow up the bridge, he tells her to go, it's okay, go. And then Janna stays with him. They really just did Rose hard, basically. That's one thing I disliked about the, uh, the Rise of Skywalker. I don't even think Rose is that compelling of a character, really. Uh, but she had a decently sized role in the in the Last Jedi, and I thought it worked pretty pretty good. 
and she's a, and she's a good actress. And I thought they would have attempted to expand that to some degree in the Rise of Skywalker, and instead they just sidelined her. And they really gave Dominic Monaghan all these lines what he didn't need. He didn't really need to be in the Rise of Skywalker at all. I'm sure it was great to be in there, and Dominic, I'm not saying you shouldn't have been in there. It, it was unnecessary, though. They could have given those lines to Rose, even. Would have expanded her role. She still would have been sidelined, but she would have had some more on-screen time, and she would have perhaps had a greater allowed her character to give greater insight to what was going on. So I thought they kind of uh, screwed that up a bit and seemed like purposely sideline Rose. So I don't know what that was about. I don't know why J.J. Uh, Abrams would choose to do that. Uh, I didn't really particularly care for the fact that they made Rhea Palpatine. Now, one thing that's interesting about The Rise of Skywalker is they attempted to maintain the fact, and this is another thing that uh, people get wrong, I've heard since I, since I saw the movies, since I saw the movie the third time, I've heard that people are, are uh, pointing to the fact that Rey is a Palpatine as a rejection of the idea in The Last Jedi that anyone could be a powerful force user and that Rey was a nobody, right? And that was sort of what you were left with coming out of The Last Jedi, that Basically, it opened it up to everybody, and there were certain people who were more naturally gifted in that regard, perhaps, like Anakin was, like Ray is, like Ben is. But uh, but that it was open to virtually anybody, and in fact, that the broom boy, as they call him at the end of The Last Jedi, the stable boy who pulls the broom to him as he's gazing off into the stars, uh, that's the reason that's there. So people are saying by her actually being a Palpatine, this is a rejection of the Last Jedi idea that it's open, but it's not because uh, this is just a this is just a revealing that Rey is in fact from this bloodline, which I think was also unnecessary to be honest. They could have done it. They could have done a few slightly different things, which would have not required her to be a Palpatine, but would have been. Uh, someone Palpatine was interested in perhaps when he was still alive uh, or yeah when he was uh, setting up his con a contingency plan for his death or something perhaps now uh, what I didn't like or, or what was also happening concurrently in the rise of Skywalker is that it was shown that essentially Finn is somewhat force sensitive and that the Janna and her team of stormtroopers, which decided to lay down their arms and uh, mutiny the empire or the mutiny, the first order, I should say, uh, were also force sensitive. So JJ Abrams has maintained that there's, that it still is wide open, but at the same time, he narrowed Ray down to being a Palpatine. Now I can sort of accept that because it then provided that nice, mirroring of uh, Ben Solo being Vader's grandson and Rey being Palpatine's granddaughter. And then you have this dyad. So that sort of matched. So that was the one way to sort of rectify that. But he also kept it open. So although I didn't like her being a Palpatine necessarily, it did work and I've accepted it and it's fine. But at the first glance, I, I wasn't really crazy about that. Something I thought they completely fucked up is this whole Knights of Ren thing. Like, they served basically zero purpose in any of this. 
They made three or four on-screen appearances to little or no effect, basically. And they were continued from the very beginning in The Force Awakens where you saw them in a flashback or, or uh, you saw them in a vision. And none of that really uh, makes any sense. And that also makes, it makes no sense why Kylo rebuilt his helmet. I thought that was unnecessary. It seemed to me that the rebuilding of the helmet really only was there to facilitate the fact that he was the leader of the Knights of Ren still. Uh, it provided a, a dialogue with him and Hux briefly. I really think it was completely unnecessary. Once he smashed that helmet on Last Jedi, that should have been the end of that. And really, the Knights of Ren did fuck all in this thing. Nothing about them is really explained. And I don't know why they even bothered. They should have never brought them back. They should have never even talked about them other than in the visual dictionaries and stuff that have come out because they serve no purpose, really, in this whole thing. And if they wanted to, like, boost them up and make them seem, uh, you know, uh, powerful... Now, in some of the comics, apparently, in some of the Kylo Ren comics, we, we learn more that there's actually somebody named Ren and that these knights are Ren and then Kylo becomes uh, the leader of them by, I believe, killing this person named Ren. But, uh, and that they also are force users to some degree. But in the movie, uh, they serve no purpose other than striking a pose and looking menacing. You see them on the uh, Pasana, on the desert planet, you see them uh, in Kajimi briefly. You see them get uh, beat the shit out of Ben Solo until he gets a lightsaber near the end. But all in all, you don't learn anything about them, and they're not, and they don't really drive the story forward very well. Even when Ben Solo kills them at the end, he kills them pretty easily too, which is kind of. Uh, I don't think it was as good. A, it wasn't even as good a, a fight as when Ray and. Kylo fought the guards in Snoke's, which was an epic fight, I think. This one with Ben Solo and the uh, Knights of Ren was kind of a subdued fight. And then you got Rey fighting these other losers who she dispatches of very quickly uh, uh, when she rejects the Emperor's uh, uh, offer, essentially. So uh, the Knights of Ren just seemed like a complete waste. I th if I was J.J. Uh, Abrams, I would have just left them in that vision and just left them as like an unknown and then not brought them back or even wasted any time with that because it just seemed like it was unnecessary. And didn't, they didn't add anything to the story, really. So I didn't like the Knights of Ren. Hux's character, I thought, stayed true to who he was at the end of The Last Jedi. I mean, when uh, Kylo and Rey fight the guards and then essentially fight each other with the force for the lightsaber and explodes and Ray then goes to, you know, goes to, uh, escapes and Hux finds Kylo unconscious and he reaches for his gun and then Kylo wakes up and he sort of puts, you know, he takes his hand off his gun. You have this, and then, and then they have this thing where, uh, Hux says the Supreme leader is dead. And then Kylo says, the Supreme Leader is dead and he chokes Hux and Hux says, long live the Supreme Leader or whatever. 
of course, there's going to be resentment there. And then you have The Rise of Skywalker, whether it's uh, Richard E. Grant's character, Allegiant General, whatever his name is, is essentially Hux's superior, it looks like. So then uh, Hux has a brief role. I did like the fact that the Richard E. Grant's character killed Hux. I like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the Hux thing wasn't too bad. It was sort of kind of uh, obvious, maybe, in a way. That he might be the the mole inside the first order because even my nine-year-old uh, niece called it before it happened on screen but i did like the fact i didn't like the line the way it was delivered by hux where he says i don't care if you're going to win i need kylo ren to lose i didn't like the way that was worded uh, but I like the sentiment, which is consistent with Hux's character, because he's against Kylo Ren. He wants to be first uh, order leader, of course, because his father was also. Uh, and so Kylo Ren's uh, uh, inhibiting that. But, and they have that contentious relationship, which is, which is furthered when uh, Kylo rebuilds his helmet and, and he says to Hux, uh, General Hux, I think you uh, have some misgivings about my appearance or whatever he says oh about the helmet no i think it's uh, fantastic or whatever right but kylo must know that hux is bullshitting him again you know uh i thought the sentiment stayed true to hux's character i didn't really like the way the line came out though i like the fact that finn shot him in the leg instead of what he requested but also uh i uh, thought uh, the dialogue on that particular line could have been improved maybe I don't know what he would have said instead but something along the lines of I need Kylo Ren uh, dead basically not just lose what else didn't I like I thought the Chewbacca thing was kind of uh, him di supposedly dying and then not, I thought that was pretty weak it did fool my uh, nieces I didn't really buy it because I didn't think they'd do Chewie that way so for me, it, it just rang as hollow. Maybe it fooled some people, and people were really worried that they were just going to murder off all the original characters. I don't know, but I didn't buy it for a second. Uh, especially when there was two transports there, which I noticed upon first glance. So I thought, uh, I liked the way that they pulled, Kylo and, and Ray were pulling the ship, though. And then that lightning uh, blew it up. I, I did like that part. And him saying that, you know, I had to test you so that you, I could be sure and you could see it as well. Uh, so I didn't, and we you know what would have been nice for the Knights of Ren. If they were going to like bolster their reputation or bring them into more of the story is to show them capturing Chewbacca. You see Chewbacca come out of the ship on Pasana. You see the Knights of Ren look at each other and notice, you know, they're sort of hiding behind the corner. If you would have seen Chewbacca fight the Knights of Ren and then subdue Chewbacca, that would have bolstered the reputation of the Knights of Ren. And maybe that was something they left on the cutting room floor. But seeing them best Chewbacca, who's capable of ripping people's arms out of their sockets and so forth, if you would have seen them beat up Chewbacca, then that would have also... Uh, and, be, and being extremely formidable then that would have also tied to the end when they beat up Ben Solo before he gets a lightsaber. 
So, but I guess you can't make movies, uh, you know, three hours, four hours long. So I thought, uh, so here's some, so light speed skipping. Now, as far, uh, as far as I know, you know, the way the light speed skipping, that was never explained. Poe's just doing this early on in the film. But from what we know about the Star Wars universe already, that's not the way light speed works. Right? Because he's skipping into uh, cities and stuff. Well, you don't use light speed, you know, uh, on the planet. You get off planet and use light speed because you're, I'm assuming you're opening some portal to another, you're sort of opening a wormhole to another side of the galaxy. And as has been seen uh, with uh, Admiral Holdo in the in the Last Jedi, you know it's that acceleration before you get up to light speed that she uses to destroy Snoke's ship. Um, yeah, skipping into the different planets, into the atmospheres. Doesn't seem to be the way light speed works under most circumstances, and so that part I didn't really like, and it was never explained like what how the Tie Fighters are following them if they're light speed skipping. I mean, they do have the tracking from the Last Jedi, but has the tracking then evolved to all ships? Because it, it used to have you have the tracking from the one ship, and then those ships follow the. You know what I mean? So I didn't like that at all. I thought it was unnecessary and uh, kind of dumb, to be honest, and not explained in any way she performed. Now, one of the things I heard after I saw the movie the third time was that I heard that one of the worlds with the tall spire-like buildings that Poe skips into, that that was a Ralph McQuarrie, that, that city or whatever he skips into, is a Ralph McQuarrie idea from the original, like re- original drawings and stuff, uh, some planet that he had come up with. So that's that's cool in a sense, but the light speed skipping didn't seem to be the a the way light speed works, and b uh, was not explained how you know all these Tie Fighters. He's losing a few of the Tie Fighters, but the others are following him. Just seemed to corrupt the idea of light speed. Uh, I already mentioned about the helmet I didn't like. No no reason to construct the helmet. Because he's still... He's done uh, all his dirtiest work, essentially, uh, without the helmet, too. He killed Han Solo without a helmet on. He fought Luke Skywalker without a helmet on. You know, he uh, dug into Ray's mind without a helmet on. I mean, the helmet was basically his Knights of Ren phase, and that phase seemed to be over. Now they resurrect the Knights of Ren, they bring them back, and he pals around with them for a bit. But that part seemed to be just like a stupid reason to have the Knights of Ren in there. And they even have some like really dumb dialogue when you first see the Knights of Ren and Kylo like walking through the Star Destroyer, and the and the uh, two stormtroopers are talk talk when they pass. He says, "Ooh, Knights of Ren, cool." I, I thought that was just fucking stupid. Anyways, so let's talk about this healing thing. 
because now we're like an hour into this discussion and this closeout. And uh, so we first see it. So they released this episode seven of The Mandalorian the day before Rise of Skywalker had a wide release. And I believe that's because Baby Yoda, what's this creature we've come to call Baby Yoda, heals Carl Weathers' character by using the Force in The Mandalorian. And then when we see the Rise of Skywalker, uh, Rey heals this snake-like creature on Pasana by using the Force. And then she heals Ben by using the Force. And then Ben brings her back to life, resurrects her, by using the force so this is first really appears in the mandalorian which is uh i believe several decades before ray comes onto the scene in the force awakens it's set between it's set just i don't know how many five years after return of the jedi or something i can't recall but it's set not so long after return of the jedi which would make it about 25 years let's say or 20 years a couple decades before the force awakens so uh baby yoda has this ability but that's the first time it's been shown in canon is post return of the jedi now of course baby yoda is supposed to be 50 in the mandalorian which means that he was alive for all of the original trilogy. And I'm not sure how far back beyond that. I'd have to go look online to see this sort of actual chronological series of events. But obviously this, this baby has had, uh, this younger Yoda has had this ability all along, which means either this is a known ability, right? Which uh, could have been used in the original trilogy. Uh, nobody knew about it, not even Yoda, which would be harder to make sense of because this baby Yoda is obviously the same species as Yoda, and Yoda was like 900 in the original trilogy, so he must have known most of what was capable of. And by then, he could also he also knew about Force ghosts and stuff because of Qui Gon Jinn. So this must have been a known thing, I would assume. Why it wasn't used, perhaps, we don't know. I think it's a nice tie-in, this healing ability. Really is a nice tie-in for the Ben Solo resurrecting Ray at the end. Because that, when you go back to The Force Awakens and he says to the Vader's helmet, I'm going to finish what you started. You could view Ben Solo's resurrection of Ray by giving his own life, his own essence essentially to Ray as a completion of Anakin's arc of attempting to prevent the death of Padme. So Ben Solo finally was able to acquire that ability or, you know, since he was redeemed and then he was uh, able to use that. So it's hard to say where this healing ability fits into the chronological order of events because I mean, could, could not have... Because uh, given that Ben Solo is not really a Jedi, I guess, because he didn't really... Did he complete his training? I don't think so. Now, he was super powerful, so maybe, like, Jedi is merely a mantle 
or, or a, uh, a a certification, if you will, level a badge you get at the end of your training, as opposed to your wherewithal with the force, right? Because obviously Ben was much more powerful than the average force user, as was Ray. So it's hard to. I mean, uh, obviously Obi Wan Kenobi did not heal uh, Gwigan Jin when he was murdered and uh, by Darth Maul. So that was not a known thing then, obviously. Or or he was incapable of doing it, perhaps. So it's hard to say where this fits in all the uh, canon, but it's interesting that it first shows up in The Mandalorian and then you see it in Rise of Skywalker. So I did think that that was a nice way to tie that in and to tie in Ben Solo and Anakin as uh, their arcs, the Skywalker arc. A Skywalker finally learned how to do that. Uh... In order to connect, some of the connecting threads, like when Lando comes back, there's a brief scene where you show he's shown in the Millennium Falcon, sort of like, hey, I'm back in the Millennium Falcon. I watched uh, Solo. The day I took my nieces to see Rise of Skywalker, I watched Solo that morning before we went, which reminded me of the uh, relationship of the robot with Lando he had this uh, female-sounding robot that he was basically having a romantic relationship with to some degree, I mean, as most uh, robots and humans or humanoids can. And then that uh, robot is destroyed except for the processor, and they put that processor in the, in the Millennium Falcon as, as a permanent part of the Millennium Falcon. So when Lando returns and Rise of Skywalker, I thought that when he's in that shot, that he should have said something. He sort of... The shot almost just suggests like he's back in it, much like Luke was in, in Last Jedi. But if he had said something like uh, referencing that robot or the part that remains of the ro of his robot lover, essentially uh, embedded in the Millennium Falcon, I thought that would have been a nice touch to tie those films together. And also, I thought that so we go to this whole idea of passing stuff. The the, see, this is another thing that, that uh, idiots who say this is a retconning of the last... A lot of the stuff is retconning of The Last Jedi. It's not, first of all. Second of all, the past, the, the connection between Rey and, and Kylo in this sort of force Skype, which was essentially allowed by the Emperor or facilitated by the Emperor, we now know, or, or the Sith beings who are resurrecting the Emperor, the ones who are behind Snoke and the Emperor, uh, that that has grown stronger and, and it grew stronger and stronger throughout The Last Jedi. And now, and we knew, and we know from the very first time they do it, that rain ends up on uh, Kylo's hand. So, so something physical has transferred across. So that whole idea of passing stuff back and forth started in The Last Jedi. And then that has continued to an even greater degree, which leads to the the, fin the finale where Ray passes a lightsaber to Ben and he kills the Knights of Ren. And uh, I thought what would have been a nice way to connect those two and to, to foreshadow the that finale if Disney had all their ducks in a row and, the, and, and knew where the story was going from day one, then the dice that Luke passes to Leia 
from the Millennium Falcon, the Han Solo dice in Last Jedi. There's a moment there which I've always wondered about, and I haven't read the actual uh, novelized version. So I don't know if this is explained in there or not. But when Luke gives her the dice in The Last Jedi when he's appearing as a projection, there's a look on Leia's face that seems to suggest that she realizes he's a projection. And then she doesn't really have much of a role after that. It's really Poe who's the new leader. Right? In fact, when they look to her, she says, why are you looking at me? Because Poe's the one who leads them out of the caves, essentially. So when she pass, when Luke passes her the dice, what I would have thought would have been a nice touch is later on when Luke you know, dies, you see Kylo find the dice when he comes in when they're long gone. And Kylo comes in with the stormtroopers or the uh, first order troopers and finds the dice on the floor. He picks them up and they disappear. What I thought they should have done there, if they're gonna, if this was gonna be the story that continues in Rise of Skywalker, they should have made those dice real. They should have made them disappear. And in that way, that would have foreshadowed again the passing of physical stuff from a non-physical Luke to a physical Leia. And that would have foreshadowed the passing of the lightsaber between using the force between Ben and uh, Ray. So I thought that would have been a nice touch if they had thought about that. But it didn't seem to be that they thought this whole thing through. So they probably couldn't have done that. Uh, I talked uh, about uh, the use of the lightning as the ultimate weapon, the force as the ultimate weapon. And they could have even had Palpatine or the restored Palpatine use some sort of device, perhaps, to channel the force through to make it the super weapon. That would have been better than just putting those cannons, Death Star tech on the uh, ships, which I hate. Other than that, I thought, you know, they did a real good job. I thought J.J. Abrams had just an impossible task to try to wrap this whole thing up. I thought the mirroring of the Han Solo thing and the use of Leia connecting to Ben to sever that relationship between the Sith and Ben, which she put all her life essence into, essentially. And then when Ray stabs him, cutting the connection to she, uh, Leia dies. That foreshadows what's going to happen to Ben, of course, at the end when he resurrects Ray. I thought her healing Ben, uh, of course, was set up by her healing the snake. And the fact that he says, uh, I like the way that they had it where he says, I held out my hand to you. You didn't take it. And later, and then when she stabs him, she says, when you held out your hand, uh, you're right. I did want to take it, but I wanted to take Ben's hand. And then she basically does when he's finally, uh, and then when he resurrects her, you see his hand and she t grabs his hand. And then they kiss and all that stuff and then he dies. But, uh, so there's a lot of nice stuff there too, you know, which I thought was well done by J.J. And my hat's off to J.J. He's not my favorite filmmaker. But with such a, a mountain of a task to come, I think he did a real admirable job and it, and it holds up to repeat viewings and it gets better with repeat vi viewings. So especially when, and after taking my nieces to see it, I thought, uh, 
even more so seeing their reactions to it i thought it was uh is great you know as i said uh i just have a few niggling things that uh bother me about it just from a storytelling uh, point but overall i thought it was great and given what they were having to work with no carrie fisher you know uh, wrapping nine movies up in one tying off a bunch of loose ends and so forth yeah i thought it was uh i thought it was a nice ascension too of powers showed how powerful ray and kylo were at the end there especially when they're flipping around and even ben solo when he uh and that was another nice thing i should point out too was ben solo's uh two times in the movie i think and there may have been more but just thinking off the top of my head two times in the movie Ben Solo does very Han Solo-like gestures. So the first time is when, uh, I think it's Hux suggests blowing up the planet Kajimi. But uh, uh, Kylo knows that Rey is down there, or senses that Rey is down there. And so he holds up his finger to Hux, like, watch yourself, or shut up, or whatever the gesture. But he holds up one finger. And that's what Han Solo used to do. Like, he used to hold up that one finger, right? When he was talking uh, like that, uh, to be authoritative. So I thought that was very uh, Han Solo-like, and that was uh, maybe done for that reason. And then later, when he finally does get the uh, lightsaber passed to him through the Force by Rey, he does, and, he, and, it, and he first shows it to the Knights of Ren, he does this gesture, which is very Han Solo, kind of this almost shrug-like, okay now we're now it's on now we're dealing with something different kind of like naturally you know or you didn't expect that well hey that's just a kind of uh, sneaky bugger i am or whatever you know very han solo and uh, i thought that was well done by jj abrams and, and chris terrio or, or whoever figured that out so that's all i have except for episode eight of the Mandalorian, I'm at a minute, uh, an hour eighteen here, and I'm probably just going to leave it at that. I'm not even going to bother dividing it up because if you're interested in Star Wars, you're probably listening to this, and if you're not, you won't. So it doesn't matter. So episode eight, eight of the Mandalorian, which I just watched this morning, uh, very interesting. You have Baby Yoda use the Force again to stop the deaths of everybody uh, from fire, from flamethrower. You have uh, the acknowledgement that the Mandalorian knows Moff Gideon, who's the villain. Uh, Mr. Esposito plays the villain and Moff Gideon. You see uh, IG-11 come to the rescue of Baby Yoda on a few occasions. And then... uh, self-destruct thereby letting them escape really good storytelling really good directing by uh, Taika Waititi also who play uh, IG uh, play IG 11 I believe also so that was excellent and then sort of the big reveal uh, you see the Mandalorian's face for the first time because IG 11 is not a human so that's not part of the code I guess so he can remove the Mandalorian's helmet and you see the uh face of the Mandalorian. Uh, 
for the first time when he has to sort of uh, save his life, heal him. Uh, so that's good to see that the, uh, the actor, you get to see the actor's face. I can't think of his name off the top of my head right now, so that's good. Uh, you sort of get this impression that season two will be the Mandalorian attempting to return Baby Yoda to his home world, which should be very interesting because we may actually find out what Yoda's species is called and we may actually visit the home planet of where Yoda's from. So that would be very interesting. And then at the very last scene, after the Mandalorian has taken down Moff Gideon and his TIE fighter and... Uh, you assume to some degree he's perhaps dead. Then Moff Gideon cuts his, uh, the Jawas who are picking the uh, destroyed TIE fighter for parts. You see Moff Gideon cut his way out of the TIE fighter with the Darksaber. Now for people who don't know what the Darksaber is, this is a, a Mandalorian weapon. A form of lightsaber that was very special to Mandalorians. It was like the leader of the Mandalorians wielded this if you wielded this, you were the leader of the Mandalorians. It passed through several hands. It was in the animated series uh, Rebels, Star Wars Rebels. And the fact that they ported that over into the Mandalorian suggests that, of course, it has changed hands again into the hands of Moff Gideon. It was used by Sabine Wren in, in Rebels, one of the main characters. It was used by Darth Maul earlier before that even when he became the leader of uh, what they call Death Watch or something I think I haven't seen all the Rebels episodes and I saw them a while ago so I'm not I'm not 100% confident in my uh, recall of all these events but uh, the fact that they chose to bring that into uh, current um, use in the Mandalorian is uh, will be particularly interesting going forward because uh, it'll be interesting to find out how Moff Gideon became the possessor of the Dark Saber and that will particularly infuriate the Mandalorian character of course as to Mandalorians valuing that Dark Saber greatly it's probably their greatest artifact perhaps so he will not like that so this will uh, be interesting to see how all this uh, pans out in season two and beyond of the Mandalorian when we, when the Mandalorian character himself finds out that Moff Gideon has this dark saber, and that was a cool part of the show when he cuts his way out and you see this for the first time. I mean that's pretty cool, and I like the Moff Gideon character. I mean it's really, the act, the acting, uh, the actor there, Esposito, uh, he's real good, real good actor and real good at portraying this uh, former Imperial. Uh, You know, this for, uh, former interior uh, Imperial uh, Moth. So, uh, I think this show is just going to get better and better. This particular episode was probably the best one, I would say. A lot of action, some backstory, some surprises, good storytelling. Uh, this show is just going to take off further and further, and we're going to learn more and more about Baby Yoda. And, uh, of course, everyone's, uh, you know... Baby Yoda's gone so viral, it's like people uh, ingesting crack cocaine or something. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. My nieces are drawing pictures of Baby Yoda, and they've never even seen the show. So, 
that just goes to show you how widespread and embedded and viral Baby Yoda has become. So, excellent series Mandalorian. I greatly enjoyed the Rise of Skywalker. And that's it. At an hour and 23, I've wrapped up the whole thing. If you've listened to this whole rambling discussion of Star Wars and, and the Rise of Skywalker and the Mandalorian, then kudos to you because you are a true Star Wars fan. And uh, yeah, if you have any thoughts, if what, what did you think of the Rise of Skywalker? Get in touch with me, D'Artagnan Magic at Gmail. Of course, D'Artagnan Magic on all social media. Give me your two cents on what you thought and how you thought some of the things tied together or maybe different ways you perceived the events of The Rise of Skywalker. Love to hear what you thought, what you thought of the movie in general. And uh, we'll be back to regular podcasts on Sunday, tomorrow, I guess, where the first part of a three-part series on my review of The Magic Rainbow by Juan Tamariz will come out, which I have... Uh, titled The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Tomorrow's episode, part one, being The Good. So until then... Mm -hmm.